Amen. Today's scripture comes from Revelation, chapter 12, the first six verses. This is the word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This ends the reading of God's word. At this time, children ages three to kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. We have been enjoying Prayer Week 2023 all this week long. We've had several prayer gatherings that have happened in people's homes and different locations. Tonight is the last one. Come back tonight. You're all welcome. At 6.30, we're having one last prayer meeting for Prayer Week 2023. We'll resume Wednesday night prayer meetings thereafter. But we have had some glorious times praying in the evenings this week, Prayer Week 2023. We ask God to do even more tonight. The hour is from 6.30 to 7.30. Come, dip into it wherever you wish. Leave when you need to. It's only an hour long. We're looking forward to a great climax. We'll, we'll be sharing some of the victories God has won through prayer tonight at that prayer meeting. We're back into Revelation chapter 12 we're back into the series on Revelation that we've been in prior to the Advent season. We're back into this glorious image of exactly how reality is going to play out, how God sees the world. I've entitled my message, Christmas, the Supreme Battle, because we have here a, a picture of the birth of Christ, I'm convinced, but more than the birth of Christ, the entrance of Christ into his people and into the world, and the dragon is the devil, the red dragon, and he just wants to devour and kill and destroy Jesus Christ and all who follow him. So I entitled my message, Christmas, the Supreme Battle. What I want to happen in every one of your hearts is for fear to be banished. Fear and shame and doubt and guilt to be banished. And for you to have replacing it a clear, bold, steely, resistant, warm-hearted faith in God for 2023. And for whatever challenges you're facing, we as a church are going through a sweet and wonderful time, but there will be wildernesses ahead. I promise you. And in those wildernesses, will we be sorrowful yet always rejoicing? Maybe you're going through a joyful time right now in your family and you have much to give thanks for. Wildernesses will come. Maybe you're going through a wilderness right now and it's difficult. Can you say in the midst of your wilderness, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing? This passage is given by the Spirit to John and John to the early churches that he wrote to and to all Christians who read the book of Revelation since that time and until forever to encourage us that there really is a devil out there 
But he's defeated by Christ and by the power of God. And we who are with Christ, trusting him, rule and reign with him already on the earth and need not live in fear and shame and doubt on behalf of and caused by the enemy of our souls. For that to happen in your hearts, that fearless confidence and joy to well up in your heart, God has to do it by a powerful inbreaking and miraculous touch. So let's pray for that to happen right now. Would you pray with me once again? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, through Christ, I come asking for help from your Holy Spirit. You, the triune God, come and speak to us from Revelation 12. You wrote it and gave it to the early church, but more than that, it's Scripture, and you've given it to the church for all time. Minister the wonder, the hope, the power, the joy that's embedded here in this passage, the victories that are ours in Jesus Christ, acknowledging the reality of the devil, acknowledging the reality of our own sin and temptation, acknowledging the reality of a fallen world, and yet knowing that you are absolutely in meticulous sovereign control. You always win, and your victory is on display for us to see right here. Show us this victory, Lord. Cause us to own it and love it and live in it with all our might. Create this warm-hearted faith, replacing shame and fear in the hearts of all who need it today. I pray it for your honor and glory, for our good, and for the advance of Christ's gospel on the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I first discovered the Bible passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, that made plain that as a person, my battles and struggles were not against other people. They weren't even against myself. Because Ephesians 6, 12 and 13 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. I had just started seminary. I was reading through the Bible using the Robert Murray McShane reading plan, and they didn't have fancy newfangled things like internet and computers and stuff like that. They had computers. I'm not that old. But I used this little um, folded up paper with all the 12 months on it, and it was about four inches by four inches, and I would unfold it and read the chapters for the day in the month I was on. And it struck me. As I read this passage, I remember I was sitting in my car. I remember what car it was. I remember reading this passage, and I remember realizing the people around me are not the problem. Myself is not the problem. Mainly, I'm naive and blind if I think that, that only the problems are the people, and if I could just get people to be different or me to be different, everything would be okay. No, in fact, there's a spiritual realm out there of cosmic powers and present darkness and forces of evil that want to try to deny Christ and, and devour him and dishonor me, and that my main battle is going to be with them. People are what I want to win out of the grip of the devil. And until Christ comes, the opportunity for human sinners to repent of sin still remains. They can still wake up. They can still be saved. It's still worth pleading and crying and weeping and struggling and aiming and, and proclaiming the gospel so that the lost are saved and Christ's purposes are achieved on the earth. 
Our struggle, our battle is for souls as the prize to rescue from the grip, the capture of the devil as they have been led to do his will according to Paul's writing to Timothy. Instead, our battle is not against human beings. Oh, that every marriage, oh, that every church, when there's a temptation to battle, oh, that every friendship, oh, that every ministry, oh, that every cluster of churches in a community would recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That every political leader, that every business magnate, every politician, every military leader would recognize that the removal of a person is not the removal of the problem. God made us in His image and He says, I mean to redeem and I mean to draw to myself unbelievers, sinners of the worst sort, highlighting the glory of my grace and the depth of my mercy. God is real. The devil is real. But the devil is a defeated foe. He's a fallen angel and he does not have sovereign power over anything. We'll see. He has a delegated power. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. Every time I read that, I want to go, big deal, so you rule over air. It means more than that. What that means is we're always and should always read passages like Revelation 12 telling us we're in a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle that you are in and I am in, and we're always in it until Christ returns. That's what Revelation 12 and the whole book of Revelation, really the whole Bible, is meant to say. There's a dragon. There's a precious girl, beautiful, clothed with the sun. And she, the bride of Christ, as it were, gave birth to Christ the first time, and she will receive him as he comes the second time. And so Satan hates her and with all his minions seeks to devour and destroy her. When we finished chapter 11 several months ago now, there were seven trumpets and you saw the sevens layered with more sevens. That's the way of saying this is God's perfect plan. It's unfolding just as God deemed. The history of the world is happening as God has designed it. Those same sevens are on display here in chapters 12, 13, and 14. There are seven signs. We're going to see two of them today. The one sign is the woman. The other sign is the dragon. It's so plain. One of the plainest passages in all of Revelation. Thank you, Lord. And this passage is meant to show us by these signs that God is about the business of revealing the devil behind all the darkness that the early churches battle with and the darkness that we battle with. So we have to have eyes, almost spiritually discerning x-ray eyes, to look past the battles in human relationships, the battles with politics or politicians or military battles or battles inside homes or churches or communities, we have to look past those battles or even the battles within us and see that there is a demonic component, a demonic force at work behind it. I read a book recently about how we can pray for and counsel those who have entered into the illusion of trying to pretend if they're a woman, they want to become a man. If they're a man, they might want to become a woman. 
So I read about this 13-year-old girl who was convinced by her friends on social media and by others that she was a man, and she did all kinds of things to her body and to her hormonal system uh, to try to help her act and feel like she was a man when, in fact, she is always a woman. 27 trillion cells in her body will always proclaim she's a woman. What happened after her transition was a detransition. She had a bunch of friends pray over her, and then someone shared the gospel with her. And then there was a moment of, of crisis in which her parents didn't know where she was, and they were pursuing her. They finally found her alone, and they called the youth pastor and others from the church who knew and loved her and cared for her, and they prayed over her. And it seemed like something broke in this 13-year-old girl's life. She didn't want to be a man anymore at all. She just wanted to go home and be herself. Mom and dad are weeping all the way as they drive home. They got their girl back, who was prodigal. And she felt so awkward and so confused and so humiliated and even puzzled why anybody would ever agree with her that while she was a girl and trying to be, tell people she was a boy, that they actually said, yep, you're a boy. The pastor who gave a little bit of a interpretation of what happened said it was like a spirit was lifted off of her. So there's, there's chemical things and there's family raising things and there's, there's influence of friend things and there's social things and there's social media stuff and there's all kinds of stuff to think about. There's all kinds of traumas that might have happened and there's all kinds of important things to give weight and consideration to. But don't forget to do battle in the heavenlies for these. Don't forget, don't forget to capture them out of Satan's grip and rescue them. Who has eyes to see that way? Who looks over you that way that they can see where there's demonic work in your life and they know how to pray for you? Who loves you that much but more than that loves God that much? This six-verse passage that Howard just read is this apex of revelation. It just seems so clear it's so helpful. It's so wonderful to read it. There's question marks, and I know that some of the things I'll say, you'll scratch your head and have to go dig further. You go be Berean and dig in. But what you'll see so plainly is that God is in absolute control, and he's permitted there to be a devil who is real and seeks to devour Christ and all who follow him. That's so plain from Revelation 12, and therefore it's so comforting to know we're in a battle and that we should be aware of that battle we should not look just at people at a horizontal, human, natural level, but at a supernatural, divine level and call on God to free people from sin. This passage is one of the many in the Bible that's caused a, one pastor in Moscow, Idaho, named Doug Wilson, to say, I could summarize the whole Bible in six words. You've heard me say this before. Doug Wilson thinks he can summarize the whole Bible in six words. Here they are. Slay the dragon, get the girl. That works pretty well here. Yeah, that, that works. So one of these, this passage is one of the passages that he draws from to say, yep, that's kind of the whole of the whole Bible. I tend to take a little longer in my explanation. Three phrases I see to help us understand these six verses. Three movements that happen. And as I unfold these three phrases and movements, what I'm aiming for again is for fear and shame to be banished from your life. There's fear and shame that's keeping some of you from freedom and worship, from bold and generous acts of love, from taking risks for the kingdom of Christ, 
from even being in church and being around God's people for fear of how it might hurt. There's some of you who are battling shame and you don't even feel like you're worthy of singing songs and of telling God that you love him and that your, your gaze is transfixed on him because you're going to rise with the great company of the saints. You don't even feel honest about talking like that. You feel like a hypocrite and a phony, and so you don't. And it's just easier to stay away. I hope some of you are listening right now. Because this message is to banish that kind of handcuffing shame and free you to walk fully in the power of God as he designed and died and rose again for you to do. Here are my three phrases. Birth pangs, death fangs, and God's banquet. Birth pangs, death fangs, and God's banquet. First birth pangs, verses 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pangs, pains and the agony of giving birth. I think this is a reference to the faithful people of God at the time when Christ was born. I think this is a reference to the, to the Elizabeths and the, and the Zechariahs, the Johns and the Annas and the Simeons and the Marys and the Josephs and everyone who was, as John later says in his epistle, to the elect lady. This is a way of talking about the church as a woman. These are the faithful Jews that started all the way back from Abel as his blood cries out all the way forward, all faithful and believing persons, Jew and Gentile. This is Ruth. This is David. This is Moses. This is Sarah and Abraham. This is Hannah and Elkanah. This is Samuel. This is the whole company of saints typified or as, as a typological person in the woman who gives birth to Christ, Mary She's beautiful. The church is beautiful, crowned with 12 stars. That's that's symbol of the 12 apostles or the 12 tribes of believing Israel. The crown means she's a queen and valuable. The moon under her feet means that she's been given everything she needs and she's resting. And the clothed with the sun means she's bearing the very glory of God himself. This woman is the woman that God has known from the foundation of the world. Amos 3.2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, God says to believing Israel. This is the beautiful church. This is the way God thinks about you. He regards you as having a moon under your feet and a crown on your head and beautiful. God loves the landing is beautiful. He loves believers around the world is beautiful. He thinks about you as so beautiful. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the psalmist writes, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. And he said, that glory from the sun is on my bride. Solomon delights in his bride as the Lord delights in his church. Who is this? Who looks down like the dawn. This is Solomon talking to his bride, like Christ talking to us. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And she's pregnant, and she's in birth pangs. She's crying out in pain and weeping, for she is about to give birth, as it were, to the Son of God. It's a reference back to Isaiah 66, where the people of Israel were to give birth, and they tried, but they gave birth only to wind. Now, finally, Zion, the people of God, typified in Mary, are giving birth to Christ. Jesus said that birth pangs would happen not only at his first coming, but until his second coming. We're in the midst of them now. Remember Matthew 24? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. There are false Christs. They're all over. 
If you ask the Lord to show you himself in all his glory and reveal the difference between him in the Bible and the false Christ that you see, there are so many. Holy Spirit's pausing me right now from going on to give you examples and details. You just ask the Lord, where are the false Christs in this culture? There are so many. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that no one, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Do you see what Revelation is saying? It's saying Christ coming the first and second time is really one big arrival. With this short time in between, it's called 1,260 days. But he came first to deal with sin on the cross. He's going to come again in, in glory, riding a great white horse, faithful and true. And he's going to set up his kingdom and reign on the earth. That's the one coming. The Old Testament saw it as a day of the Lord, a singular glorious event, even though we're living in the midst of it. And it looks like his first and second coming, which of course it is. But viewed in this apocalyptic way as one arrival. And so we say, Lord, come quickly. We know that birth pangs are going to mark the landing. They're going to mark my walk of faith. They're going to mark your walk of faith. It's okay. It's normal. Nobody who acts like they have a pain-free Christian life is telling you the truth. They're lying. And nobody gets more healing and more money and more ease in their life because they have bigger faith and therefore can twist God's arm stronger. That's a lie. Jesus lived through birth pangs, and he said, we will too. Don't begrudge the birth pangs that the Lord has for you because they're filled with joy. The whole point of birth pangs is a baby's coming. That's the point of birth pangs. A child is going to be born We've been praying for this child and eager for this child to come. It's the kingdom of God, Christ's return, the fullness of all of God's promises realized. That's what the birth pangs we're enduring now are about to give birth to. Paul said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That's some of his birth pangs. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on the day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you realize that one of the functions of birth pangs in your life is to help you say, come Lord Jesus? That's one of the reasons why life is supposed to hurt. It's a huge realization to step back and say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a huge realization to say, Lord, I offer to you my diagnosis. And I ask that you purify it. And give it back to me as my servant. To strengthen me. And not destroy or crush me. I, I offer to you this tragedy that's happened in our family or in our church. I offer to you this tragedy that's happened in the culture or that's happened on the mission field or to our 
extended family. And I ask you to purify it and give it back to me as a servant so that it strengthens me and doesn't destroy me. That it strengthens your gospel as it's proclaimed and doesn't cloud it or confuse it or shadow it. Birth pangs. It's a normal part of this 1,260-day stretch of time, this intermediary time before Christ's birth, Christmas, his death and resurrection, and his enthronement, and his second coming, the parousia, his arrival as king. Death fangs, verses 3 and 4, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Death fangs. Death fangs. This is an allusion to the great serpent that tempted and deceived Adam and Eve. John almost assuredly has in mind either Babylon or Rome or or a symbol of those cities and the evil and horror that those cities and their leaders are foisting upon innocence and and upon the people of Christ. But it's, it's larger than just two cities. It's the entire world system of oppression and greed and love of money. And behind that, he's saying there is a serpent, there's a demon, there's demonic forces, and they're real and they're at work. They've been at work all the way along. The seven heads is an attempt to say, I've got this perfect amount of power and I've got these, these phony crowns I'm putting on my own head, says the devil. And, and the horns mean I've got power in all kinds of directions and I've got my, my influence in all kinds of spheres. The devil has a broad sweep of influence in the world, but don't think that that was God's Don't think that that was against God's plan or something God did not intend. Listen, you know this verse. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. I spent a lot of time on this verse this last week and I realized for the first time in my life that word lies is actually a divine passive. It should actually read, we know that we're from God and the whole world has been laid in the power of the evil one. God has put in the power of the evil one the influence that he has on the world. He's the one who's causing disobedience, but he's doing it because God has laid influence in his power. Verse 4 says, The devil swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. What I think that's referring to is an example of the power of the evil one. I think it's, a, it's an allusion to Daniel 8. Way back in Daniel 8, it says, Out of them came a little horn. That's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. That's Jerusalem. He grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. I think that's an allusion to what happened in 70 A.D. And then later again in the second century, when Jerusalem and the temple were trashed and trampled and destroyed. The date specifically for Antiochus is 167. I th- and, and that was actually before Christ. So that's 300 years before almost. These are military efforts to try to destroy the people of God. And what I think John is saying is the devil's behind those. The devil wants to devour Christ. The devil wants to devour the enemy. 
The devil, his enemy, the devil wants to devour us who trust in Christ. He's maybe laboring and striving upon me and upon you in this room right now. Maybe he was laboring and trying to devour and, and strive against Christ in your life and your family yesterday or last night or over the Christmas holiday or maybe it's coming in the future. How will we stand against the enemy? He has this hatred of Christ and he wants to devour Christ. He was behind Herod and his plan when Jesus was born to try to kill all the babies that were in Bethlehem so that he might kill the Christ who was a threat to him and his kingdom. He's behind the grandson of Herod the Great who was part of and joining with those who called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 30 years later, 33 years later. His hatred for Christ is the same way he has always been. He's a devourer. He's a dragon with fangs. He has wanted to kill from the beginning. That's his design. In a glorious reversal, the very designs of the devil to come into Judas and cause Judas to sell and betray Jesus Christ over to the Pharisees to be crucified was, in fact, the very defeat and destruction of the devil himself. He committed suicide when he caused Jesus to go to the cross. We are all as needful and as prone to dark-heartedness as the enemy himself. He's so subtle. He doesn't come and, and put a brass ring in our nose and, and lead us away or put a, a, a clasp of an iron ring around our neck and with chains lead us away. No, no, no. He, he comes and he, he taps into the sinful desires that are in our hearts. The fallen sin nature that we inherited from Adam. He taps into that so that we are now in league with him in ways we don't even know. The culture is in league with the devil in ways they don't even know. The killing of those made in the image of God wantonly from their birth is fully in league with the demonic. But many would not dare, dare admit that. The darkness pervades our hearts as well. Every one of us needs light and an answer. We need a different heart. We need a heart that's new and clean. A heart that loves God and loves his ways and loves the light and loves the truth and loves Christ. Not one heart that wants to flee or criticize or rebel the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Ezekiel. He prophesied that this new heart would be given in Ezekiel 36. The Lord speaks, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give, your, give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I have to ask, has that happened to you? Do you have a new heart? Can you say, Lord, I do desire your spirit. I do desire your word. And I do desire to obey your commands. They're not a drudgery or a duty for me. They are my delight. I am your person and part of your people. And you are my God. For you have delivered me from all my uncleanness. If you haven't received a new heart from the Lord, eternal life is awaiting you. 
turn from the only thing the devil can offer you, which is hell, and receive the new heart that only Christ can give, a new heart that makes you love him, desire him, be filled with his spirit, and want to walk with him, but not only walk with him, become like him, and have eternal life awaiting you. More than that, right here in this passage, it's only the persons with a new heart that have the ability to resist and stand against the devil. Unbelievers with an old and self-concerned, self-protecting, self-centered, darkened heart filled with shame and guilt, they are ripe for the enemy to devour. Birth pangs, death fangs, and God's banquet. Look at verses 5 and 6. They show the birth of the child. They show this victory of the child and the rescue of the woman into God's care in the wilderness. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. That 1,260 days is first a picture of Jesus' ministry on earth. That's how long he ministered. And it's also a picture of the ministry that we, the body of Christ, are ministering on earth from his death, resurrection, and enthronement all the way to his second coming. It's a symbolic number. We saw it back in chapter 11. Here the child is born. The child is Christ. He is the Son of God, and he is the one to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's a quote and an allusion from Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Don't think of Christ just reigning in the future. He's on the throne of the universe right now. And it says he was caught up to God. This is the same verb used of Paul when he was caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. This isn't a, don't think of this as a rescue. Ooh, ooh, we got to get this little kid out of the dragon's mouth. No, no, no. This was a delightful victory journey. And the, this same verb, caught up, is used of the church as we will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air in 1 Thessalonians 4 on his second coming. Don't think of this as the male child escaping the devil. No, no, no. He is born to rule with a rod of iron. He's not running scared. He is not fleeing. He's moving in victorious power up to his place at the right hand of the Father. Notice that it says he's born to rule with a rod of iron. We know from so many passages in Scripture, including Philippians 2, that the right that Christ has to rule, the name that he has, Jesus, that we sang just a few moments ago, this absolute authority that Christ has as he rules over the world right now, over every thought of my mind and yours, he qualified for having died on the cross in humility, been raised from the dead and then was enthroned at the Father's right hand. Philippians 2 says, He died on the cross, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name above all names. Christ rules with the rod of iron because he was willing to suffer nails of iron and a spearhead of iron and a death on a wooden cross. His death on the cross 
qualifies him and makes him worthy to rule with the rod of iron. So when this passage says he's caught up to God and he's going to rule with the rod of iron, then we say, oh yeah, that means, oh, the whole thing. He was, he was arrested and he was brutalized and he was accused and hung on a cross and he was laid in a grave and he rose again and he was enthroned as he ascended in the clouds. All that's caught up in this word, caught up, pun intended. That's how the child defeats the dragon. That's how we defeat the dragon. We're trusting in Christ. We're counting on the gospel. We're saying, devil, you cannot drag me down because my sins are already confessed and forgiven. I am forgiven fully of sins, past, present, and future, and any that come to my mind I confess, and he is faithful and just to forgive me of all unrighteousness. That's my Lord, that's my gospel, that's my salvation. That's how the woman, representing the body of Christ, remains in the wilderness. Did you see what happens to the woman? She's caught up, or she's not caught up, the sun is caught up. She is fleeing. She escapes into the wilderness, a place prepared by God. What's it prepared for? It's prepared for God to nourish her. This verb is a verb for nursing mothers or feeding children and raising them. This is a verb for feeding animals. It's the idea of husbandry and caring for needy children or animals. That's what the church receives from God during this whole time when there is spiritual battle going on and the devil is prowling around seeking someone to devour. How does God nourish? Well, I thought of four things. There's probably a lot more. First, To those with a new heart, he has given his spirit. His spirit dwells within us. His spirit is constantly ministering to us. His spirit is giving us fruits and gifts of all kinds laid out in the scriptures. These fruits and all these gifts in the Bible are meant to nourish us and offer freely to one another to nourish each other. Oh, I pray that you can pray yourself right now at the start of 2023. Ephesians 3.19, oh God, would you fill me up to all the fullness of God by your Holy Spirit. I don't want to do anything in the life of this church without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to preach any sermon. I don't want to sing any song. I don't want to do any conversations with anybody. I don't want to plan any ministries. I don't want you or I to be doing anything in 2023 without the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything in the flesh... Let it cease immediately. and Let all the things in the Spirit flourish. The second way God nourishes the church during this season in the wilderness until Christ returns is He gives the Word. The Spirit has authored the Word. And so all with the Spirit will read and delight in the Word. Meditate on the Word every day. My challenge to every one of you, make sure the Word of God is open on your phone or in your Bible, in print, digitally, or in your ear as you listen, some way for you and your family every day for 2023. Don't miss a day. Let it be sung. Let it be spoken on recording. Read it. See it. Make artwork out of it. Do whatever you have to do to make sure the Word of God is in your heart and mind every day. Martin Luther said, a reformer from the 1500s, all the cunning of the devil is aimed at trying to tear us away from the Word. Read it every day. It's your very life. Third way, God nourishes the church, the people of God, while they're in the wilderness protected from the enemy, is the gospel. Preach to yourself. Listen to great preaching. Give yourself wholeheartedly to the preaching of the gospel. Find ways to articulate the gospel 
in your own words. Talk to people about it and strengthen one another's grasp on it, understanding of it. Go to classes. Go and learn online. Find all the resources you possibly can. Read and absorb to deepen, widen, stretch, and expand your grasp of the gospel. Say to yourself, I'm forgiven. My sins are gone. If Christ comes back, praise the Lord. He's going to be better than anything I might be missing if he comes back on this earth. And if I die first, praise the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. I'm ready to die. Are you ready to die? That'd be a great place for an answer. Are you ready to die? I am too. We'd, we'd be sad if you did. But if you died in the Lord, we'd be more glad than sad. Fourth and final way that the church is nourished by God in the wilderness. He's nourished by God in the wilderness. She is nourished by God in the wilderness by other members of the body. The fullness. If you let your eyes drop down in Revelation 12, you can see verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. The rest of her offspring. The woman, the church, has offspring, and we're all it. We're family. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The rest of the offspring is the phrase I'm drawing out from verse 17. It makes us realize we're part of a family. You need one another. You cannot live the Christian life as a lone ranger, as a solo, as an all-by-yourself private thing. That's absolutely a lie from the enemy that's made its way into American Christianity for the last 50 years. I wish it were rooted out. There's no such thing as lone ranger Christianity. Rather, we are given gifts that are meant to be offered to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit that both encourage the one who gives and the one who receives. That's true because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are themselves love and loving each other perfectly, and they incorporate and and absorb into their love all those who love them through faith in Christ. And so we are together loving each other with the very love that courses through the Trinity. That's what you see in Revelation 2 and 3, the churches that were seven in number. They are love-laden local churches. You want to tick the devil off really bad so he shrieks and runs away from you? Find a good local church where the gospel is proclaimed, lived, and throw your full commitment into it. Gifts, fruits, time, and all. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's be the most well-nourished bride of Christ we can possibly be in 2023. Find something that strengthens your hand in God and dive into it. Do not participate or, or, or be a, a spectator, but instead participate in the body of Christ. Dive in fully. Give yourself to discovering how God has wired you to love other people. That would be called your spiritual gift. Give yourself to discovering how all the fruits of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all nine of them, how they, how they express themselves as delicious gifts to other people through your life. Internet's, internet use, let's fill it with the glory of God and with the gospel. Conferences, mission trips, outreach ventures, worship services, Bible studies, songs written, artwork of every kind, prayer meetings, worship services. Let's fill restaurants and coffee shops. We should just announce to the people of Duluth, here we come. We're going to come into the coffee shops and we're going to come into the restaurants and we're going to pray loud enough so that somebody goes, amen, that wasn't actually in the original prayer meeting. 
Yes, I know there's birth pangs. I've had them. Yes, there are death fangs. There is a real devil. He wants to devour Christ, but he's a defeated foe. But God says in this time, don't begrudge the birth pangs. Don't begrudge my permitting and letting the world lie in the devil's hands temporarily. I have plans to bless and purify and beautify you, my bride. So just like Solomon sings to his bride in Song of Solomon chapter 2, so the Lord Jesus Christ sings to his bride, us, the church, and we sing back to him. He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to ask for the person that was in my mind, persons, the type of person who was in my mind all week long as I was writing this, that they would be freed from fear and shame that keeps them from enjoying all the blessings that you have for them in these painful days, what the Bible calls days of evil. Lord, I'm, I, I pray that something in Revelation 12 would pierce their thought and their heart and say, why can't I have all that the Bible promises me to have? Why can't I have the joy the fellowship, the sweetness, the overflowing abundance in prayer, the authentic worship, the sense of God's real presence with me by His Holy Spirit, the richness of His Word. Why can't I have those things? You can. Lord, please awaken those who have been slumbering and thinking that's not for me because of pain, because of sin done to them or by them because of confusion or error because of the wicked designs of the enemy to devour please Lord draw I pray every person out of darkness into light that you have chosen from before the foundation of the world in this city you have many people in this city way more than fits in a building like this Make buildings obsolete as you spark true spiritual awakening and revival in Duluth Superior in such a way that the body of Christ comes out of darkness into light and speaks the truth in love, even if it means the devil comes with his fangs to try to devour us. He doesn't know it, but his attempts to devour us are just proof that we're pleasing you. Lord, for any who are going back to a birth pang-filled wilderness, I pray that you would strengthen them now. Let a time of prayer, let a warm embrace and a joyful meal and a lingering remembrance of a phrase from your word be their strength and their hope. And then when they arrive back home or wherever they fear going, you would surprise them by showing up there ahead of them and being there when they arrive. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all the good things you're doing in our lives here at The Landing. We thank you so much for your word. And we thank you now for the way that you will give us to respond to it by declaring you are the joy that we have in this world. In Jesus' name, I pray. Would you stand?